Grace and peace to you this Lord's Day from the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. I'm Dr. Baron Mullis. I'm the pastor of this congregation, and along with the Reverend Megan Lecluse, our liturgist, and our director of music, Andrew Sin, and all of our musicians, I am delighted to welcome you to our service of worship. Before we move into the body of the service, I'd like to update you on the status of the reopening of the church for in-person worship services. We are beginning the installation of live stream equipment in the sanctuary this week, but we have learned that that installation may be somewhat protracted. It is possible that our first in-person services may require us to use a pre-recorded uh, worship service for our online viewers during this season of adjustment. We plan to offer an in-person worship service starting July 4th, but we do need you to register for that July 4th service so that we can provide for spatial distancing. We'll also be expecting masks, but as the infection rate falls, we look forward to changing that expectation. With this noted, you can look at our church website for an opportunity to register and also in your weekly e-news. Let us join together now in our responsive call to worship. O Lord, you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give you thanks forever.
Let us confess our sins to God, for God is faithful and loves us eternally. Gracious God, you have made every living thing, placing us in a world of wonders you sustain in your very being. And yet, we think this is not so. We view your action with disenchanted eyes, not knowing that you are carrying us every day of our lives. We place our faith in disciplines of our own making, thinking we can contain the enormous wonder of the cosmos with equations and discoveries, not realizing that in doing so, we exchange faith in you and your creative power for mere idols. Forgive our lack of faith. Enchant our minds with a vision of your gracious sustenance, such that wherever we look, we are surrounded by your grace. We pray all these things through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God loves us, God forgives us, and frees us from our sins. So be at peace and love with boldness and generosity. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Our first scripture reading comes to us from the second letter to the Corinthians, in the eighth chapter, starting at the seventh verse. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, so we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I am giving my advice. It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something. Now finish doing it, so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that in their abundance may be for your need, in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. Here ends our first reading. Our gospel lesson is taken from the fifth chapter of Mark's gospel. We begin in the 21st verse, and we continue through the 43rd. Listen for the word of God to us today. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him 
and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowds pressing in on you. How can you say, Who touched me? But he looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the girl's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Chum, which means, Little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Join me now, if you will, in a word of prayer. Let us pray together. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In his marvelous novel, World of Wonders, Robertson Davies offers this observation. We have educated ourselves into a world from which wonder and the fear and dread and splendor and freedom of wonder have been banished. Do you think this is true? I read recently the hypothesis that the enduring popularity of the Harry Potter novels is due in large measure to the element of fantasy that appeals to those who seek something more akin to wonder in our humdrum day-in, day-out lives. Miracle stories, uh, like our gospel lesson today, are stories of wonder. 
Yet I cannot help but question if we have banished wonder from our interpretations of these miracles. I suspect our loss of the ability to understand miracles can be pinned on modernity, the Industrial Revolution, and the scientific method. And what I mean by this is not in any way to be anti-science. I mean, no, we put God under the microscope and thought we could figure it out. It didn't work, but primarily because we asked the wrong questions. And as a result, theology took some wrong turns. We began to question whether or not the biblical stories were really true. Now, mind you, questions are good. Most, if not all, the great advances in understanding have come because of questions. Questioning the Bible is a good thing. But we have to ask the right questions. It helps if our questions start with what the author of any biblical text meant for us to see. 19th century theologian Rudolf Bultmann suggested that we could get to the heart of a story by stripping away everything but its essence. He suggested that there is a kerygma, that is the Greek word for kernel, that lies at the heart of the story that is what is most important about any given biblical story. One could then shed the form of the story and just concentrate on the message. In Bultmann's way of thinking, the story could even be factually false and yet nonetheless theologically true. So we could determine that Jairus, his daughter, the disciples, the crowd, the woman with the flow of blood, none of them are important to this story. It's only what's theologically true that matters. In this way of viewing theology and the world and faith, a miracle is that which cannot be explained by present science, but doesn't need to be because it's the theology that counts, after all. But my friend Brian Blood offers a critique of this view. He says that means simply we don't understand it today. One day, it is presumed, science will be able to explain it. And so psychologically, a miracle is an object of distrust, something people thought happened but certainly did not happen the way they think. It's more of a mental occurrence or a mental observation of an occurrence that could objectively be explained in a non-miraculous fashion. Which is fine, unless, of course, you are Jairus, his daughter, or the woman with the hemorrhage. Then the form of the story suddenly becomes a great deal more important. Then Dr. Blunt states that in fact we cannot divorce the meaning of the story from the miracle, not if we intend to be true to Mark's intent. Because miracles are how Mark sees the story. 
Nearly a third of Mark's gospel is dedicated to stories about the miracles of Jesus. If we want to understand the gospel according to Mark, we must live in a world of wonders. Learning to live in a world of wonders might challenge us. Living in a world of wonders requires not so much the suspension of disbelief as the fundamental reorientation of how we approach God's activity in the world. You see, for moderns, for us, miracles appear to be the suspension of natural law. Science says that it must happen this way. It didn't. It must be a miracle. That's a modern understanding. But the ancients had no such distinction of natural law. Their understanding of the day-in, day-out life in the physical world was one that presumed the faithful love of God for God's people. So natural law, then, just wasn't part of the equation. God's action was presumed. Uh, that's why, if we want to understand the miracles of Jesus, we must be willing to live in a world of wonders. And since modernity lends itself to skepticism, we must continually entertain the question, what if it really happened that way? What if it really happened that way? And if we're serious about that question, it will bring us face to face with our own limitations. For instance, it's not helpful in understanding this text, to ask what might be a typical modern question of it, such as, why a miracle at this time and not at another? A natural question for us, perhaps. But for Calvin and for the pre-modern theologians, interpretation of this text encountered no such problem. Of course God intervenes in physical ways. And if God does not intervene, it's no skin off our noses. And I must determine that, Cal that Mark must have had a, a Calvinist streak about him because he's not concerned with when the miracles didn't occur. He just wants to tell us the stories of when they did. To step into the world of wonders is to step into the miracle of a world sustained by God. Now, that is not the same at all as attributing divine causality to all events from things as mundane as the occurrence of an av the availability of a parking space on Walnut Street to things as massive as natural disasters. But rather, it is to say that it is to recognize that all of it is taking place under the watchful eye of God, the benevolent watchful eye of God. To step into Mark's world of wonders is to rest in the assurance of God's gracious love toward us. Which returns us to our story today. 
Mark's intent in telling it is not simply to attribute the characteristics of power over disease and death, but rather to indicate that the Jesus who does these miracles is the very incarnation of God, of the God who creates, redeems, and sustains all of human history. Jesus is the incarnation of the God under whose watchful, benevolent eye all of creation is taking place. And just as the chaos of wind and water in last week's story represent a challenge to creation, so too does Brian conclude, Jesus' stilling of the stormy seas and winds demonstrate God's action through Jesus to reclaim the creation that has gone so chaotically astray. The miracles are not proofs of the kingdom. They don't guarantee that the kingdom may come. They are one of the demonstrative means by which the kingdom has come. If you are Jairus or his daughter or the crowd or the disciples or the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage, these miracles are the in-breaking of the kingdom of God. These miracles mean the kingdom has come. And the point of the miracle is to spark faith. At every turn in Mark's gospel narrative, the disciples miss these inbreakings of the kingdom, and Jesus is constantly excoriating them for their lack of faith. And at almost every turn, when the kingdom does break in, it is some no-name character who represents the response of faith, the response of trust in the power of God to act. In fact, Jairus, the synagogue leader, is the rare exception of having his name mentioned. The challenge for us as modern heroes of this story is clear. We are called to participate in the same kingdom of God of which miraculous activity is seen as the manifestation. Living in a world of wonders is to attune one's eyes <coughs> excuse me, to look through the lens of faith. Living in a world of wonders is an invitation to remember that we ourselves are to be the very manifestation of the kingdom of God that Jesus is preaching. Now, the way I see it, there are twin dangers that accompany this invitation to live as manifestations of the kingdom of God, of the reign of Christ. One is, if you'll forgive me for being flippant, one is to be a kook. The other is to be an ingrate. What I mean is the first danger is that of saying too much, of seeing things that simply are not there. The second danger is of not saying enough. The risk we run when we try to say too much is that we will say it wrong, that we will indeed attribute divine causality to things that are simply coincidences, such as the occurrence of your parking space. The risk we run when we say too little is that we will ignore the kingdom at work among us.
Nobody said it was easy, but living in the world of wonders with all its ambiguity is living in the world of faith. It is making room for an enchanted worldview in an often disenchanted world. It is living in the place where we may see fear and dread and splendor and freedom. These stories of miracles, you see, open the door for all of these fear and dread, splendor and freedom, all in a moment. Consider this. Mark's ancient audience would have known that this nameless woman's touch, elicited from her by her faith, her very touch would have made Jesus ritually unclean. That would mean he was unfit for entering the temple. And that leads to fear and dread. And yet in touching Jesus in the world of wonders, rather than Jesus being made unclean, this woman is instead made clean. She is restored to full community. She is restored to wholeness. And that is splendor and freedom. Mark's ancient audience would have known as well that in the regular world it made perfect sense that Jairus' staff would have called off the call for Jesus as touching a dead body. Again, fear and dread would also have rendered Jesus unfit for the community pending a ritual cleansing. And yet in a world of wonders, the world that Mark's audience inhabits, Jesus' answer is to ask the question, why all of this commotion and crying? And casting out the doubters from the house, by his touch, again, faith becomes the manifestation of the kingdom. <clears throat> In a world where the opposite of faith is certainty, the rival dangers of saying too much and saying too little are not so much tempting to us as they are irrelevant. We aren't required to dictate where and when miracles occur. Rather, we are invited to live in faith, trusting that in so doing, in engaging a wonderful worldview where we see the sustaining care of God, that we will then encounter the grace of God in unexpected ways. Memoirist Anne Lamott tells a story about trying to drag herself out of the doldrums of faith on her 49th birthday. She starts by telling us she went on a walk with a friend in the desert, but she concludes the desert didn't work. And it probably didn't help that she started off with the observation that she hates cactuses. Later that day, she won a ham at the grocery store. Turns out she doesn't like ham, but the checker was so excited to give her the ham that she pretended to be excited too. She almost suggested that this checker give the ham to the next family who paid with food stamps, but she concluded if God was going to give her a ham, she'd be crazy not to receive it. She writes, finally the bag boy handed me a parcel the size of a cat. I put it with feigned cheer into my grocery cart and walked to the car, trying to figure out who might need it. I thought about chucking the parcel out the window near a field. I was so distracted that I crashed my cart into a slow-moving car in the parking lot. 
I started to apologize when I noticed that the car was a rusty wreck and an old friend was behind the wheel. We got sober together a long time ago and each of us had a son at the same time. She has dark black skin and processed hair the color of cooled tar. She opened her window. Hey, I said, how are you? It's my birthday. Happy birthday, she said, and started crying. She looked drained and pinched, and after a moment, she pointed at her gas gauge. I don't have money for gas or food. I've never asked for help from a friend since I got sober, but I'm asking you to help me. I've got money, I said. No, no, I just need gas, she said. I never asked anyone for a handout. It's not a handout, I told her. It's my birthday present. And I thrust a bunch of money into her hand, everything I had. Then I reached down into my shopping cart and held out the ham to her like a clown offering flowers. Hey, I said, do you and your kids like ham? We love it, she said. We love it for every meal. She put it in the seat beside her firmly, lovingly, as if she were about to strap it in. And she cried some more. Later, thinking about her, I remembered the seasonal showers in the desert, how potholes in the rocks fill up with rain. When you look later, there are already frogs in the water and brine, ship, brine shrimp reproducing like commas doing the Macarena. And it seems, but only seems, that you went from parched to overflow in the blink of an eye. Isn't that the miracle of faith? From parched to overflow in the blink of an eye. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us together confess what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We are grateful that throughout this time, you have continued to give generously. So let us joyfully share of our abundance with others as we trust in God, who provides for all our needs.
Almighty God, you created the world for good. Give to all leaders and people the wisdom to live in harmony with one another for the health of all creation. You call your church to abound in generosity. Inspire us to share our abundance with our sister churches who are in need, that together we may be a sign of unity in Christ. Your touch has made has your touch has the power to make us whole. Restore all who suffer in body, mind, or spirit, and strengthen us as we extend our arms in love as witnesses to your healing. Steadfast God, you call us to dwell with you forever. We remember those who are dying and those who have died. May they know the joy of your eternal presence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hear these prayers, the prayers of all of our hearts, and the prayer that your Son, our Lord, taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
The miracle of faith is the movement from parched to overflow in the blink of an eye. May it be so for you. May it be so for all of us. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen.